Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Now here's your host, C.W. Hall. Good morning, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Health Connect South Radio show. Good morning, C.W. It's a full house today in the new Sky Studio. That's right, overlooking the Atlanta skyline. And uh, you had a fun time getting here today, but you made it. Drove over a few sidewalks and yards. <laughs> That's right. Just a few people have got a, <laughs> had to jump out of the way, so it's fine. <laughs> We've got law enforcement looking for Jay. But here we are, coming down to basically four weeks out, aren't we, from the upcoming... September 21st. For our loyal listeners, you get use the coupon code RADIOX. Also, you can take advantage of the early bird discount, so there's not going to get many... You're not going to get many better offers than that today to take advantage of the early bird discount and the Radio X coupon. You know you want to be there on September 21st, so go ahead and sign up now. And we're going to be featuring experts on a number of the top disease states affecting folks around the globe to bring about discussions about innovations that are happening to tackle some of these uh, diseases, many of which are preventable on a large scale. So looking forward to having as many folks from the Atlanta area and the Southeastern region join us uh, if they are in the healthcare space and are trying to tackle some of those uh, top disease states like heart disease. And uh, Well, last year, our collective response to Ebola with Dr. Crozier, that was phenomenal. So just imagine what we can do if everybody works proactively against the top disease states. That's the theme for this year. Lung disorders, cancers, and neurologic diseases, trauma is another one that affects many, many people, uh, cutting lives short. Uh, Today, we're going to be featuring a couple of folks uh, that are definitely in... in part handling some of that innovation from both the development perspective as well as around legal legal aspects affecting those innovations. We've got Sydney Welch. She is the practice lead for healthcare innovation at Pocinelli. Been with them for a while and handles a number of things from operational, transactional, regulatory, administrative, and litigation matters nationally. She works with clients to structure transactions and respond to compliance issues associated with federal and state healthcare laws and regulations. She's known for her work with specialty physician practices and healthcare technology companies across the country, providing strategic counsel to clients regarding innovations in healthcare. Thanks for taking some time, Sydney. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. And then we also have from the Global Center for Medical Innovation, Tiff Wilson, the executive director over there at GCMI. Thanks for sitting in. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back. Got some news. Do you want to talk about that when we when we get going? Absolutely. Okay. We're very good. I'm pleased to have you here with us. Sydney, let's start with you. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the, the way we're innovating to affect positive change in these disease states that we were talking about coming up in our in our upcoming event with the data as backdrop, because I know protecting data and handling data is, is, is a big part of things. Talk about the top challenges for healthcare as the industry shifts to value-based care. What does that mean for providers as they're trying to deal with some of these disease states and the way they go about it? Well, absolutely. The, all these things are interrelated. And I think at part underlying wave, if you will, for 
change is looking at the data that's infiltrated healthcare and how do we use that to optimize care and drive down costs. And that's the big mystery that everybody's trying to get their arms around right now. So there's a lot of innovation that's being promulgated around um, gathering the data, analyzing the data, using the data to build protocols, because we are go- undergoing a huge shift in the mindset, at least for traditional providers, um, whether it's hospital and health systems, academic medical centers, or the hands-on deliverer of cares, physicians, nurses, etc., looking for the shift from volume to value or quality, depending on how you define it. And value is changing in definitions from what the clinicians are used to. They used to consider that to be a measure of how well they did based on their evaluation clinically looking at medical records compared to their peers. And now they're looking at it in terms of a cost component to that. And everybody's struggling to define what those measures are get the improved outcomes and then also the efficiency drive down the cost, those two pieces to the puzzle. I'm sure it is changing things quite a bit on the payer side as well with regards to trying to structure things so that it takes into account the the fact that CW's A1Cs are trending down and that kind of thing, but being able to compensate the providers in a way that it makes sense, that keeps them doing that kind of work and, and ensures that patients are getting better, as you talked about, in a cost-efficient cost efficient way. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all knew that change was needed, and it's a question of how to drive that change and what the ultimate goal is better and easier to arrive at that. But what everybody's been struggling is, is what the right measures are. You know, and it's been a little bit of a throwing the spaghetti up against the wall phenomenon in terms of, okay, we have to change this language. It's really a new language for everybody involved in the system and the shift from volume to value. And so payers, just like anybody else, are looking at what those measures should be. And we're all speculating as to are the measures that we're putting in place the measures that's going to create the change that we ultimately are looking for. So we see that on the payer front just as much as we see the provider front. What incentives do we put in place to replace the volume to get the providers to the outcomes that we're looking for? And you can see some of that change in and from the payer's perspective, not only in the agreements with their providers, some of the butting of heads as those agreements are being renegotiated. Yeah. We're seeing some of that in the Atlanta marketplace, um, but that also the consolidation on the payer front. Yeah. You know, they've done an excellent job of gathering data next to the government. They probably have the biggest data set of anybody. And how are they using and refining that? And then the importance of clinician input into looking at that data, because while they may have the data, it's the people that have the hands-on that then can look at that data and then also know the reality of the delivery and how do they bridge that gap or make that connection. When it comes to innovation around the value-based approach to healthcare, I'm sure, at least at least in my experience so far, many of the innovators that I've come across are in the technology space and they are developing uh, applications, for example, that will plug into an EMR and, and add a little bit more maybe automation to certain components that will drive that value-based delivery of care. Things like if I'm managing chronic diseases, uh, there's some measure of regular touch that I have to do with that patient that's outbound from my practice. 
um, their innovation in that component that will allow my practice to be able to do that without necessarily having the doctor have to do it or even even one of the nursing staff per se. Are you seeing other areas of innovation around trying to tackle the transition to value-based delivery of care? Yeah, absolutely. That's where technology has boom entered into healthcare in the past, you know, what, seven plus years. And that's really changed what we've seen. We've gone from a traditional based provider practice to this healthcare tech layer on top of it, looking at all of these issues and things that layer on top of each other, whether it's in telehealth, whether it's the innovation in mobile health, whether it's the data analytics or precision medicine, or all of these alternative payment models, and they all fit together. They're all driving each other in terms of what they do. But the innovators um, in this space, I would say as a whole, are really looking at how did they participate in a meaningful way to get the change and increase the efficiencies in large part. And when you look at the spectrum of those that are playing in this space, I think their challenge is, A, trying to be unique. Um, There tend to be topics or clusters around certain areas. um, And you have to first ask the questions, is what I'm offering unique and is it going to be effective? And in that second component to it, is it going to have meaning in terms of that transition from value to value, whether it's gathering the data, whether it's improving communication, a lot's being seen on that front, because as we're here to talk about today, collaboration is in large part the name of the game. Mm -hmm. And a big piece to that collaboration is communication and efficient communication. Have you seen the interoperability component between systems to be improving over the last year or two, or is it still kind of a chasm that we have yet to fill? I think it's improving, but at a snail's pace. It's one of those things that almost defies logic is how we cannot get there and we need to get there very quickly. Um, It's a frustration for providers. It's a frustration for providers when the regulations and other legal requirements demand that interoperability. The government's struggling with it. We've all seen that piece to it, but that's a fundamental baseline challenge for everybody. We have to be all on the same language or multiple languages where there's a common thread where we can communicate. Do you feel like that is a component of my my data? I can't let anybody else have it. Or do you think that it is technology still trying to figure out how do I maybe de-identify some of this data or not? And in the case where I need to work with another organization or provider, I need it to be CW's data. But do you think it's technology or do you think it's more proprietary kind of hoarding of of information? Others may disagree. I don't think it's the technology. I think it's twofold. I think it is this concept and this struggle between the privacy and the intellectual property rights in the information. Mm. Um, And that's a huge big ticket item these days. We do a lot of work in that area, preserving and protecting what's ours. But then at the same token, we want information sharing. So I think that that's a big struggle. I also think it's an area where what's been put in place from a regulatory environment really doesn't match what the technology is, and it doesn't promote um, the growth in that area. So, uh, you know, we have all these privacy regulations, which in a way are oftentimes an impediment. I mean, they're a necessary evil because we do want as individual that information, particularly health information, is hugely sensitive. But by the same token, there's value to information sharing. Um, And then simply the government's view on technology and how that information impacts um, things from a healthcare delivery perspective, I think the regulatory 
regulatory framework has not caught up to where the innovation is. And so it's two steps forward and five steps back oftentimes. And it's a huge frustration to folks. It seems to me that uh, the value-based approach is one that's going to have some positive effects. I think that uh, that it was changing the focus in that direction, I think, has some real value to patients. Um, I believe that particularly when you're looking at chronic disease management, for example, I think that by and large, I, I would expect to see a trend line improving across those patient populations. What, it, what impacts do you think this is having beyond that with regards to patients? It would seem that obviously some of that is cost. Patients are bearing a little more out-of-pocket costs now. And I know that part of the thinking behind that was that if I have to have a little more skin in the game, if you will, then I'm going to make better healthcare choices, perhaps maybe make some behavioral changes that I need to make around diet or whatever. But how do you see this type of care delivery model affecting the patient beyond just hopefully improving some of their outcomes? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's it was change that was necessary. And if done right, it does have great patient benefit to it. I mean, you start at the low level, low hanging fruit, um, whether it's simply eliminating prescription and medication errors. I mean, certainly nobody can argue with that. Doing fundamental things like improving readmissions. So if somebody's not discharged out there and then coming back the next day, um, making sure sure the left hand and the right hand know what each other are doing in care coordination, patient-centered medical homes, or um, other alternative payment models. I think those are absolutely necessary. Of course, in turn, we need to make sure that we couple the right measures to make sure that patients um, actually are being benefited and we don't wind up cutting care where care, care is necessary. I think we also need to make sure that patients know how to navigate the system because that's a huge um, issue for any healthcare consumer, sophisticated or unsophisticated. And then the last issue, I think what you're getting at is making sure that the patients have some skin in the game. And that's been a huge frustration for providers, physicians in particular, when you saw the uh, the Affordable uh, Accountable Care Act and, uh, and all of that, those pieces and components that come with that they really looked and said, okay, well, where are the patients in all of this? I can sit here. I can get them, make them the appointment. I can, you know, advise them to lose weight. But until they actually do the things that I'm asking them to do, um, we can't effectuate that change. And I do think we're seeing some fascinating things being done with the patients having skin in the game through um, mobile health and those types of devices, whatever label you put on it. But the wellness initiatives where, you know, people are motivated by their Fitbits and things like that. Um, So we're starting to see some patient engagement and some of the innovation that we're seeing coming out of Health Connect South really is designed for the ease of patients getting information to their physicians or their hospital institution. And in turn, that then timely affecting treatment and coming back to the patient so that they can do something, whether it's a change of prescription, whether it's getting into the doctor's office more efficiently or what have you. I don't know if it falls under the work that you do with the healthcare innovation part of your practice, but I'm curious, have you come across the compliant wellness programs that that businesses are able to put in place that 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 fall into some of the ACA regulations that allows them to, I guess, reduce some tax burden, for example, if they're putting in place a compliant wellness program? Have you seen any of that with with any of your clients in, in terms of that component where the person themselves is actually beginning to take some of the action that you're talking about to reduce 
weight and stop smoking, things like that? Absolutely. When it starts to have the financial implications in the correct way on their health insurance costs, we absolutely have seen that. We've also seen some very interesting employer-based initiative. We've been working a lot with the employment benefits folks. They're, they're very relevant today. So whether it's, and you see this in Atlanta happening with some of the big employers, um, putting together employer-based clinics so that somebody has the ability to be treated on site, whether through telehealth um, and the players in town doing that to make that convenience to their patients, so they their employees, so they literally don't have to leave their desk to get the what they know they need a prescription for a cough or you know what what have you. So they're reducing time away from work and then not being disincented to make that. Um, visit an appointment when they actually need that appointment. And we're also seeing the employers come together in coalitions, um, you know, Coca-Cola and others, UPS, forming the coalition to problem solve around this. They all have the information and the data and the resources together for their employees. How do they pool that information to make it relevant? And then what do they do with it? I would imagine that that would be a great way to hasten the pace at which they're able to make progress across those groups of people. And and maybe one of those areas where maybe breaking down silos and sharing some of that type of information helps everybody. I think that's exactly it. And I think that that was a lot of the reasoning behind that. Um, We're moving, we need to move faster than everything else is moving. So (laughs) let's just cut straight to the chase. The regulatory climate has certainly been changing a little faster than our ability to, to adapt. Right. And I met with someone who was at one of the in uh, employment clinics and the lost productivity yes. pays for itself. I mean, it's just a multiple, the ROI is so high on that. Just have the clinic in the, so the employees don't have to take a day off to go to the doctor. Well, and uh, as you know, oftentimes the, you know, an employee will wait and mm-hmm. rather than be seen and say, okay, I'll push this and I'll push this until it becomes a real problem. So yes, the immediately loss out of the office and the cost associated with that, but then uh, the prolonged treatment when they could have mm-hmm. nipped it in the bud. We've been talking with Sydney Welch, the healthcare innovation practice lead for Polsonelli, learning about what healthcare and, and both healthcare and enterprise in the area are doing to try to help the transition to value-based medicine, um, which in large part is aimed at tackling some of those disease states we'll be talking about at the upcoming Health Connect South event, things like lung disease, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, um, and others. Many of those are affected uh, by these types of value-based approaches where we're trying to do prevention and, and evaluate whether or not the patient's conditions and biometric data is reflecting the fact that what we're doing is actually having an impact. And, t- and, and Sydney, we were talking about types of innovation and, and, and when we were talking about EMRs and things like that, that there was a lot of innovation around that technology that's aimed at helping us capture some of that data or maybe automate some of our processes. But you touched on another area of innovation that I've been seeing a lot lately, and that is trying to develop ways to deliver care remotely using telephony and video um, to deliver telemedicine services across surprising types of specialties, not just primary care. It started in the uh, behavioral medicine space, I think was one of the big areas where it really took off. But I'm I'm seeing now there's high-risk maternal fetal specialists that are delivering care by uh, telemedicine. Are you seeing other areas like that that are innovating around 
telemedicine and, and other types of delivery? It really is. You know, tele-radiology uh, has been around forever. And so now it's really tele-everything um, because <laughs> where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, maternal fetal medicine is a great example of that. You think traditionally telehealth has been used in remote areas. So you have a patient in a small town in Georgia, they have a fetal anomaly or a suspected fetal anomaly is three hours to get to a metropolitan area. They can dial in or maybe say they see the provider in the specialist in Atlanta. Initially, they have a diagnosis and then they can go back and to the rural area and be monitored on a frequent basis. Um, we see it, uh, it particularly has been helpful in telepsychiatry. Um, it's being used telepsychology, um, even remote monitoring on critical care units, rightly or wrongly. I've uh, heard anesthesia management um, through telehealth, which is a little bit perhaps unnerving or unsettling, <laughs> um, but we really are truly seeing it everywhere. And it's not only the buckets of information that's being taken um, and then stored and then sent to a provider for interpretation and a look-see, but also the whole boon and things that cross over between telehealth and mobile health in the form of monitoring. So, you know, you could be have your diabetes levels, for example, um, monitored um, remotely, and that data is constantly feeding in or cardiac, you know, mm -hmm. things. So you're really encouraging things to be done at home as opposed to, again, the office or hospital check-ins on a frequent basis, telestroke, and the post-cardiac rehab is another right. great example of that, where you look at the difficulty and challenges for a patient to get back to the rehab center. Well, no, we can actually do this at home, and we can monitor, and therefore the outcomes are more successful. Yeah, we talked to one of those companies, actually. Yeah, I was going to say we had MedZed on, and I think the folks there said when the banking apps first came out, everybody said it's mobile banking, and now it's just banking. So, well, so moving for the, analytics, aren't they the company that's doing the cardiac rehab? And yeah, they were they talking were about the fact that only 35% of the patients that have a cardiac event or a yeah. vascular event that requires cardiac rehab, only 35% get it. Yeah. Yeah, they were a great example of what Health Connect South has done in terms of connecting again mm -hmm. and promoting. Um, diocese was another example, mm -hmm. I believe, that you right. all used um, in your startup and conversation where they're connecting, um, again, the diabetes information on a real-time basis, monitoring the patient, collects the information, shoots it to the provider, the provider accesses it, and then real-time, by virtue of algorithm, is then able to adapt the patient's treatment protocol and make the change that day wow. rather than having to go a month or 90 days right. in between office visits. So I can see where that would have a significant cost reduction trend over time in terms of office visits and being able to maybe thwart some of the more expensive things that will come downstream if we don't get your A1Cs well, going in the right direction. So that's, that's right. pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Talk about how you're seeing collaboration occur now that that's a big part of it. We have the emergence of the concept of the patient-centered medical home, for example, kind of a sing single place that connects as a hub of a wheel to different specialists. How are you seeing collaboration flow nowadays in the way healthcare is being delivered? Well, it's everywhere and, and rightly or wrongly, it's the mandate, if you will, that's come down from the government in terms of coordination of care and improved care. And you, so you can see it, for example, in MACRA um, that's just been proposed and then the bits and pieces of that dividing into the acronym soup of MIPS and alternative payment <laughs> models. So, it, um, you know, we're abbreviated out just about in the healthcare space, but all APMs or alternative 
payment models being the patient-centered homes or the ACOs, the accountable care organizations, where you really do the theory behind those is if you do a good job of coordinating a patient's care, you will see um, less admissions into the hospital, less physician visits, and therefore decreased cost in the healthcare system. Um, on the MIPS, really looking at do we how do we address quality? How do we address the electronic health record? How do we set those markers for providers to meet? Um, but you know, you look at it. Bundled payment models are, is a great example of where forced collaboration is taking place um, because that's you know at least out there is one option for the delivery of care. But most recently, at the end of July, we had a proposed rule that centered around cardiac and hip fracture care that's come out that's really incented taking the $300 billion that's expended in post-cardiac event care and saying, how do we reduce some of that and putting those providers trying to get to the government's goal of 50% of providers being in alternative payment models by 2018. And so what they're saying is we will make one bundled payment, if you will, to usually the institution, but whoever the enrolled provider is, and you sort out how that payment is made amongst everybody involved in the care. That sounds uh, fun. Yes. <laughs> uh, but if you are if you are under whatever the marker is, say it's $50,000 per episode, then we will share in that savings with you for having achieved that. So in order to get under, to get the savings, there has to be either um, reduced care and reduced expenditure um, rightly or wrongly, um, and then there has to be, um, but what you want to do to safeguard against that is really coordinate all of the left hands and right hands so that they know what they're doing and the most efficient way to bring the cost in under those markers. Because if they don't, then on the other hand, they're going to be required to pay up when they exceed those markers, financial markers. We've been talking with Sydney Welch of Polsonelli, learning about particularly how healthcare providers and payers and patients even are adapting to the new value-based payment approach to delivering healthcare. Hopefully it's fostering greater collaboration and that being one of the big things that we're all about here with Health Connect South is collaboration among healthcare assets. And that one of the positive efforts that those changes are trying to make is that providers of care, physicians included, are able to interact with each other more effectively, whether that's through the electronic medical records or other means. We've also been joined here by Tiff Wilson of GCMI, and they're one of the organizations that helps emerging technologies and uh, innovations actually make it to the marketplace. How is this kind of flowing for you? You, you, you A few months ago, we talked about the state of med tech innovation in the Southeast. So What's going on lately? Well, I talked about the fact when we introduced you. You got some, yep, you got some news. Yeah. We uh, we announced a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're in the process of acquiring T three Labs, um, which I believe we were on all together uh, last time, talking about how we work together and collaborate together. And so T three is a um, preclinical testing and training facility located just down the road from our facility at GCMI, which now, you know, we really have a, you know, I was kind of smiling when Sydney was talking about coordination of care, because it's really coordination of care for med tech entrepreneurs with what we're doing, Um, where at GCMI, we've got the ability to, um, you know, 
design, engineer, prototype, build, do some bench testing of a broad range of technologies. Um, but now with the coordination through T3, we can uh, take those all, th- all the way through preclinical testing, FDA clearance or approval, and then training of surgeons um, and clinical care providers on these new technologies at that facility. Where do you think that the bigger gains are going to be from combining forces into one entity like that? So, you know, our whole mission is to work with med tech innovators and entrepreneurs to help them accelerate their device development. The the process of going from a medical device concept through clinical trials and commercial launch is a very multidisciplinary, complicated, expensive process. A lot of these companies are started by doctors and engineers, technologists who don't haven't necessarily gone down that pathway before. And the commercialization p- part isn't always as logical as, say, the scientific process. <laughs> and it really is this kind of messy um, intersection of science, medicine, business, and government that requires proper collaboration to get to get through. And so in my kind of industry experience and uh, and startup experience prior to getting involved with GCMI, really reflecting on that um, took away how difficult it is to build in your own ecosystem and to find the right experts along the way, whether it's regulatory help or reimbursement or insight from investors and industry. And so we've really looked at how we can um, put all those pieces together up front to make it easier for the innovator or the entrepreneur to navigate that. So you're not spending then weeks upon weeks on trying to figure out, well, what should I ask FDA about my classification and how do I frame that? And how do I find a consultant that I really can know and trust? And gosh, I know I need to do preclinical work, but I know it's expensive and it takes a long time. Who do I call? So rather than asking all those what ifs and just kind of procrastinating, and I see innovators do it over and over and over again, (laughs) you know, we try, have tried to create a central, um, point of contact, if you will, we, we can build those relationships and can help people connect the dots faster. So as a result, you're not burning through days and days of wasted capital, just trying to seek answers to problems. You're, you're spending those days on actual development and that commercialization pathway. I know that going you know, to the wrong phraseology and in, in your submission to the FDA, for example, can cause you all kinds of headaches and delay. Mm-hmm. Talk about the process. How does it flow when I, I'm one of those innovators you talked about? Maybe I'm a surgeon that's come up with a better widget for serving you know, this sort of surgery. How does it flow from, from that great idea to actually getting it into the marketplace where somebody can use it? The first thing we do is um, you know, I'll spend time with that person and really understand what their goal is as an individual. Uh, you know, is this a product or is this a company? Is this a, um, is it truly an unmet clinical need uh, or is it something, simply a problem that they're experiencing that maybe could be addressed with another technology or another process? Uh, and then we'll bring in our technical team and pull from the ecosystem that we've we've built. So, you know, we've got a team of four biomedical engineers and a physician that can help, but we can't solve everybody's problems. And so we'll bring in whatever technical expertise we might do to provide insight on that early on. So before an innovator 
an entrepreneur is spending any money on any prototyping or product development to really fundamentally understand, is there a market there for that? So how many patients, how many procedures, um, what are the competitive technologies? What's the regulatory pathway? Um, you know, how risky is it going to be to get something through? What's the investment environment look like for that therapeutic area? And so assuming that, you know, you check all those boxes, we start down the development pathway where, you know, we're designing, getting inputs from various users, design, build, and test, and design, build, and test, <laughs> and to do the documentation um, to, to get it through on the other side of FDA. And, you, and then the challenges of commercialization start. You mentioned, is this a product or is this a company? That's mm-hmm. an interesting question. I would imagine that there's a lot of people that go, I don't know. It would seem that that's a probably relatively important decision. It's a very important decision uh, because, you know, it's funny on the all, all the changes in the healthcare um, kind of physician practices and hospital-owned physicians now, you know, everyone's trying to figure out how you make an extra buck. So uh, clinicians want to be entrepreneurs now, but, you know, that presents a host of challenges that, A, you know, everyone can be involved in the entrepreneurial process, but not everyone should be CEO of their own med tech startup. Um, And so on the startup side, you know, if you have a platform technology, so something that could be applied to marry a range of different therapeutic areas or a host, a suite of products that's addressing say GI, other digestive health, cardiovascular, what have you, that's a platform that you can build a startup on. There's tremendous growth there. If I'm a surgeon and I have an idea for a new surgical tool, that may just be a really valuable surgical tool, but it's not something that you would start a company and raise a ton of money around. That being said, you still have to have that kind of business discipline in that product development uh, approach because it still has to go through FDA. The, the company on the back end who's going to acquire that technology and actually market it and sell it, they're going to want to see that risk, that technical and regulatory risk taken out of the equation. And depending on the technology, they may even want to see some sales or some use with it. And I think that the whole value-based discussion is absolutely critical where, you know, gone are the days where you could say, yes, if I use this tool, I'm going to save 30 minutes in the operating room. And that equates to X dollars in savings. Now the hospital value analysis committees, payers, they want to see the actual data that proves that your device can do what it's you say it can do. And that data costs a lot of money to gather. Uh, and so it just, it's that much more planning early on in that process, another layer of complexity. And that's part of what you're going to be helping your client do is Correct. construct a well put together study so that Someone doesn't come and poke holes in it because they say, oh, you were just, it wasn't well constructed. Yeah, right. and you, you kind of want to hit the, you know, the, before um, a lot of surgical procedures, they'll do a timeout where, you know, okay, who's the patient we're treating? What side are we operating on? Do we have everything? Everything's here. We started to try and do that with our entrepreneurs and innovators too, is up front, you know, what's the goal here? Is it a startup or is it a license? What does this market want to see? What technical expertise do we need to bring around the table right now before we spend that first dollar? And that includes the regulatory insight, the insight from payers, the preclinical input from T3 labs, and then any other expert that may be relevant for any particular technology. 
what kind of time do you see it typically taking to go from that idea to going through the process you're talking about and submitting to regulatory agencies like FDA and others? How long does it take so, before they can sell it? So it depends. It depends on the complexity of the technology, how novel it is, how much testing is going to be required. It also requires, uh, depends on the coachability of the tech, of the startup uh, and the entrepreneur. Sometimes people just want to go on their own pathway and, and that's fine. I guarantee it'll take longer and be more expensive than if they were collaborating with an ecosystem. We have seen uh, you know, a company go from a concept to uh, a 510k submission in 11 months. The entrepreneurs were the first one at GCM. They're part of our incubator. Mm-hmm. First ones there in the morning, last ones to leave. Really did an amazing job of taking advice from experts in the ecosystem, uh, plugging into our product development team and making the, that go really quickly. And they got on the market within a year. Wow. That, that's Well, startups good. are really hard. I mean, over here, the, over here at the ATV, David Cummings, the head of it, he has these uh, reports all the time. Uh, 10,000 companies that venture capitals put in, only 250 of those 10,000 return money to the investors. Yeah. Wow. And one of the 10,000 is, a, is a, what they call the unicorn, the one that's a billion dollar valuation. So that's really hard. And those are people that are not putting companies that are not changing or saving people's lives. Mm-hmm. So you are dealing with companies that have a degree of difficulty that's multiple of what the software engineers are doing. So well, that's off it's, to it's just GCMI. gotten It's just gotten more complicated. And this whole discussion around value-based care. Now, it's another um, element that has to be addressed up front. So not only are you coming up with a new technology to solve a very complex problem, you know, we're seeing a lot of our uh, innovators and entrepreneurs, everything's about digital health now. Mm-hmm. We don't do pure app development and pure health IT, but almost everything we see now has sensors and software and, um, you know, with Bluetooth connections, collecting right. data. How do you keep the data private? How then? What data is really that attractive and how do you make money doing that? But in the development process, we're seeing the collaborations between people who may have not really worked together before. So mechanical engineers and electrical engineers and software people (laughs) trying to work together around, you know, new regulations, new laws. It's been really interesting to see how all those pieces fit together. And now the preclinical piece and the testing is another layer on top of that. And nobody really has the answers, but the the careful collaboration and asking of questions is really critical. And I, and I think an interesting but related question to that is, are they playing to the payment standards that are now or imminently now, or are they playing beyond those? Mm-hmm. And I think they really are probably to be really successful playing beyond those. Yep. Because again, the government's playing catch up and trying to figure it out. So if what you're offering is going beyond that to then turn back and drive those standards, you know, we're doing a lot of education in DC of the various agencies on behalf of our clients to basically bring them to that understanding about how it can help them and assist them. So I would be curious to kind of track that as it progresses and see where those successes are. I mean, you know, a few years ago, the big challenge was FDA. FDA was saying no, no, no. (laughs) Over the past three to five years, they've really made tremendous strides in being more proactive in working with early stage companies, innovators, they want to talk to people early and often. It's not scary anymore. And they really are putting 
putting that out there. And so that's a little easier now, but then to, to your point, the whole payment thing and, and payers and how do you navigate all of these things and that are constantly changing, you know, and, and not just of today, but the regulations and uh, healthcare laws of tomorrow. We've been talking with Tiff Wilson of the Global Center for Medical Innovation. And Tiff, in, given your role and, and your spot in the healthcare ecosystem around that technology you know, innovation, are there particular areas of need uh, for different technologies, regardless of what they are? Do you, do you, you have, kind of have a, a sense of what is needed? We're seeing, you know, we never know what's going to walk through the door. Uh, there's a, a tremendous amount of unmet clinical needs. Um, we see a lot of people working on devices for elderly and disabled uh, to stay at home longer and to manage that care more frequently. Um, there's a lot of uh, innovation in ophthalmic applications, you know, t- telemedicine for different um, technologies there. In neurology, GI, everyone's trying to crack different things in cardiovascular still. It's really all over the map. From from the perspective of hearing about that, I mean, are there are there parts of the industry that are talking about some of those things that we we really would like to see particular focus on cardiology issues or I mean how does it how does that kind of conversation flow they want to see game-changing technologies so they don't want to see me too technologies little tweaks here and there right uh, and so that that makes it even more challenging for the, the startup community and the innovators because the there, there's so many unknowns you have to there. hit a home run you have to hit a home run and um, and the idea itself has to be like wow oh my gosh the idea but that immediately relates to well how, who's going to pay for that you know is there really a payment model for that and gosh that means a very long pathway at FDA and with all the other uncertainty around that you better have the right team in place and the right development plan to really tackle that um, and, and that's where the the collaboration piece really comes in and playing nice with others because otherwise it's just impossible to get there it just takes way too long what would you say are some good examples of success stories of some of those companies that are innovating coming through GCMI? Well, um, so, you know, a lot of the companies that we work with are super early. Um, we've been open now for four years. We've had two companies spin out of our incubator. One is Infant. I think they've been they on, on the, here. They were yep. on the show. With Lou, and, Lou and Tommy mm-hmm. are awesome. And uh, and so they're in the pediatric space. Uh, and so they're the one that went so quickly, uh, you know, their workhorses and went great collaborators. And Lou Malice has been around the device industry his whole career and just gets how that works. Um, and so they're addressing a, an I- issue in the um, in the pediatric premature baby market and their feeding. Um, so that has a value-based component to it that they started to address very early on of how do we get the babies out of the NICU in a measured way because um, by measuring their sucking strength um, with that technology. Um, you know, another company that everybody refers to in Atlanta is Cardiomems. You know, that that has great value-based medicine out- implications. I know that that technology, since it's been with St. Jude, has had some issues on reimbursement and um, ACA and you know, navigating that. But the whole goal of that was to manage patients with congestive heart failure remotely Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So you could make uh, tweaks to their medication and yeah. keep them out of the hospital um, with the whole readmission rate. You know, End of Choice is another company that's here in Atlanta. Um, they were founded back in 2008, I think. And they're, they have a suite of products in the GI space, totally revamping, you know, t- very collaborative w- within the Atlanta community and also um, with some of their partners in, in Israel. So lots of different examples there. Restore Medical is another one um, who I love. They actually, that technology was born out of Grady uh, Hospital here in Atlanta. Uh, two Grady employees, they worked in sterilization services and surgical technician, and they saw a real problem with the um, cleaning and disinfecting of surgical tools in a proper way, went off on their own, got their intellectual property, started prototyping. They met us right when we were launching GCMI. We made some connections for them. They ended up going to SEMDA, getting into the zero to 510 accelerator in Memphis and it really kind of knocked it out of the park uh, in Memphis. (laughs) So yeah, but, but you know, these guys, they, they connected with the ecosystem. It wasn't about their ego. Uh, It wasn't about their, their startup. It was about really being passionate about solving this problem for their patients. One of the facets of the ecosystem that we certainly have seen around the, the Health Connect South events that we've had over time and, and here on the show occasionally comes from the funding and, and investment side of things. Obviously, you're dealing with these very young startups and conceptual uh, ideas. What does an investor need to see to be able to fund some of these things that are that are coming to you? So, you know, every pocket of investors different. You know, you see a lot of angel investors getting engaged in the space uh, early. They may be passionate about a particular disease state. Maybe they've had a family member afflicted with some something like that. VCs are pretty much non-existent um, for early stage companies right now in the med tech space with the exception of a couple. But at the end of the day, everyone wants to understand, you know, what is the market opportunity um, in having true customer validation of that. So the importance of doing your customer discovery homework. They want to show proof of concept that the technology in its core form will work um, and that there's a clear intellectual property pathway uh, for that and that it's properly protected. Um, They want to make sure that there's a business model that makes sense, you know, very clearly defined how, how does this company make money the team is always very important. They want to see uh, a grown-up in the room uh, and that experience leadership. It can't just be technology, a team full of technologists. The business aspect really has to be there, that industry insight. And then a real solid understanding of the capital requirements, So, which is why this hitting the pause button up front uh, and doing proper planning is so critical. So, you know, you want to understand every phase uh, what are the critical milestones that add value to that technology and that company at each phase? And then what tranches of money are required um, at each phase to, to get to that point? Do you see, when you look at the just the space around innovation in our region, do you see areas where you, you think greater collaboration needs to be happening, uh, wherever that might be, from different directions, but opportunities for to collaborate that might foster greater tech innovation around our region? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's the the, the age-old 
challenge, I think, of university translation uh, technology and particularly around med tech. You've got to have doctors, engineers, and business people really working together. Doctors and engineers, uh, nurses, they're the inventors of these technologies. And so if they're an academic, if they're in an academic setting, a lot, a lot of times they get stuck uh, in that academic setting. It's very hard to translate that out of the university um, and, and tech transfer function into a viable uh, business opportunity. So, you know, I think there is uh, an opportunity for increased dialogue between technologists, tech transfer, and the business investment community to understand where the where the gaps and weaknesses are, and then how can private investors really uh, coach and have the universities be coached on de-risking technologies in a way as it travels outside the lab into the commercial marketplace to really increase the likelihood of success. How do you see things like the Georgia Research Alliance, ATDC, those types of groups kind of fomenting some of that? So G- GRA is, uh, is a great source of capital for uh, supporting university-based resor- research in, in Georgia. Uh, I work closely with uh, Rachel Hagen at the Coulter Foundation at Georgia Tech and Emory, and she came here from uh, University of Washington a few years ago and really gets that model. Um, this, they've just done, done, invested in their second tranche of um, of companies um, at the Coulter Foundation out of Georgia Tech and Emory, and I think everything's licensed or sold at this point, uh, that the model definitely works. And so she and I and GRA have started to talk about, you know, how we can address some of those issues and almost line up sources of capital advisors on the pathway from the university into the commercial uh, marketplace. So trying to engage the investment community a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, there's a big gap between, there's lots of sources of of Mm. public money, right? Non-dilutive funding, grants, business plan competitions. NIH is a big funder of that. Um, Coulter, GRA. Challenge a lot of times is the inventors like to take that money back into their lab and um, they iterate uh, and design products, in quotation marks, um, (laughs) uh, in their lab without any customer validation uh, and really understanding what the unmet clinical need is. And then there's a level of frustration when they spend a couple million bucks in non-dilutive funding and yet no private investor really wants to fund them uh, coming out of that. So I think there is an opportunity to include private investment and take their advice um, in that process. So they're spending those sources of non-dilutive funding. It may not be interesting from a science perspective, but very interesting from a de-risking and positioning for follow-on private investment. Like they say in the startup world, the idea is the easy part. It's, yeah. <laughs> uh, you can come up with ideas all the time. It's getting that execution. And what's really interesting in the medical space is making sure you plug into the ecosystem. Yeah. Get the, get the right players involved. So that's it. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. It, it, startups are really hard. And medical startups are even, They're, we have an exponent. Yes. <laughs> well, I'll throw this to, to both of you as we come down to the last few minutes. I mean, Obviously, you've been involved with Health Connect South over its lifetime and and been able to see collaborations occur. I mean, what would you say to the healthcare executive or expert out there listening to us today? Why why bother? Why 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 go to a Health Connect South event and be plugged into that whole space? I'm not aware of any other event in the Southeast where you can have the opportunity to. 
to bring together all these healthcare assets and, and brainstorm to solve real problems. And so most conferences and gatherings tend to be very, you know, it's medical devices or it's health IT or it's global health. A and new medicine. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is an opportunity. You've got all of these things together. And, you know, I've just seen through my involvement with Health Connect South and working with Russ and, and uh, interacting with people like the CDC and different hospital systems, there's so much opportunity now to address some of these problems if people just execute, you know? So this is an opportunity to really talk, connect, think big, and then choose things that are powerful to really go and and execute around. That's one of the things I've noticed at the events as well, is they're they're not just you go and you're an audience member. There's opportunities to interact with the speakers. There's opportunities to, obviously it's built in to interact with each other there to try to put you together with resources that you might need for sure. It's all about talking and doing, solving problems and and doing versus just talk, 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 talk. As Jay said, you know, to use the term, it's the ecosystem rather than just the silos. And even if it is just hearing different vantage points on what the challenges are, that's a great starting place for deriving the solutions. But I think the event does more than that because it gives a forum to make the connections, to have the conversations about the problems and challenges and the solutions so that you're really looking at it from a well-informed, full package type of perspective rather than just guesstimating what you think a solution is because you're looking at it just from one set of lenses, whereas you're hearing, you know, from multiple different people is, 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 uh, I can't remember who the quote is attributed to, but the more minds you put on a problem or a challenge, the better the solutions are. Well, before we, I was just going to say, thank you both for being founding sponsors of Health Connect South. So when this was just an idea in Russ's head, Polzinelli and GCMI, provided some funding, which is much needed to get the event going. So we really appreciate that. Second thing was, from a personal standpoint, I was going to the initial, the inaugural Health Connect South, I was going to go charge my phone up off the second floor of the Woodruff Center, and I see Russ LaPerry and Diana Keogh and CW in an animated conversation. <laughs> I just kind of poked my nose in there, and that's what led to Health Connect South Radio. So uh, that, yeah. that was the type of thing, those type of hallway discussions where people bump into somebody at the drink table or over lunch or standing in line, they talk and they collaborate. And they said, that's where, that's where the idea came from right there. You'll always find me at the drink table. <laughs> Make sure you share your information. How do they get more information about Polsonelli and then of course uh, GCMI as well? We're at polsonelli.com and I will spell it because it's a little bit of tricky, but it's P-O-L-S-I-N-E-L-L-I.com. And off of the healthcare services page is our healthcare innovations page, talking about all the cutting edge issues in healthcare that we're addressing a little bit differently, I think, than a lot of uh, folks that handle the traditional healthcare matters are doing. There'll be links there to all the social media uh, sites for Polsonelli as well. And then uh, GCMI can be found at devices.net. Uh, and T3 Labs is at t3labs.org. Now, will that all fold into one space eventually? Eventually, but for the time being, they'll be, we'll manage them as two separate entities with a whole lot of collaboration in between. Gotcha. And again, make sure if you've not done so already, you get to healthconnectsouth.com and register. That's right. And use your Radio X coupon. We want you to get that discount and share it with your colleagues and 
if you've not done so already, make sure you subscribe to the Health Connect South Radio Show podcast. You can click on the Apple logo. That'll take you to the iTunes store. So you can subscribe to us and have the new episode downloaded straight to your device for you each week. To you, you can listen to it when it's convenient for you. We hope you turn around and share this information with your social media networks. Put this information out there. You might just be sit, setting some information in the hands of somebody that matters to you, that makes a big difference for them. And based on what we're talking about here with Health Connect South in general, it might just be a collaboration that really moves some initiative forward that has far-reaching events and effects uh, beyond what you would imagine. So we want to say thanks in advance for the folks who will click share for us. And uh, our guests, Sydney and Tiff, thanks so much for taking some time again today to be here in the studio and share on healthcare innovation around our region and 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 how you see the the Health Connect South platform folding into that. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks, EW. So it's great to be here. 70 what? What's the number? I think it's 70. 70. Okay, 70. that's great. Yeah. We're getting old. <laughs> Everybody out there who made us a part of your day today, I want to say thanks so much. We appreciate you, Russ and Shivani and Jay, all the folks over at Health Connect South. Been great partners. We really appreciate Paul, that. And, and Paul course, from Right to Market. Paul from Right to Market, handling communications for Health Connect South. We really want to say thanks so much to everybody that's a part of it. We look forward to catching up with you next week. We'll see you then. 